Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the dog is barking. Some medical officials are saying the kids should be in school, not out of school. What do you think? New modeling coming out Tuesday suggests things are going to get even more scary in Ontario when it comes to COVID-19. And almost a week later, many are still asking how demonstrators got inside the Capitol building. We'll give you an update. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Week number two of online learning at home in Ontario. Don't worry about us, kids. We can handle the stress. However, I'm not sure the internet companies can. Oh, man! Another drop? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Ah. There you go. If that wasn't so uh, true, it'd be funny. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Uh, there's one for me to you there, Will. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, the website, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, the phone line is always open to 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. And don't forget about Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting there for you, too, on the United States. And uh, President Trump and, and some conspiracy theorists uh, upset that he has been removed from uh, social media platforms, or some anyway. And, um, and you know, it, it's it's an invasion of his rights. Well, no, it's a privately run company uh if they don't want to do business with you they don't have to if they don't want you in their store they can kick you out especially when you wreck it so uh it's not like that the president has lost any of his freedoms or rights he's just been denied from a private company from using their services because they don't want his business he can still walk down to the press room stand in front of the podium and say whatever he wants and the world will listen They'll even give him network time. However, the difference is he will have to answer questions. You just can't stand there and lie. Oh, there's... That's the drag right there. But again, uh, he can chat at any time, and I'm sure there'll be a swarm of media around him to... uh, to listen to what he has to say. Feel free to weigh in on that on Facebook and Twitter. All right, as I mentioned, uh, no new curfews uh, going to be, or no curfews announced for Ontario. Uh, we saw, obviously, Quebec go into a curfew over the weekend. Uh, more modeling coming out tomorrow. No news conference today. Here's what uh, Brianna Carnegie had to say about, uh, well, a lot of speculation about what will happen tomorrow. Premier Doug Ford has given no new details of what restrictions are coming when he arrived at Queen's Park this morning. Well, we worked all weekend. We'll be going to a cabinet with recommendations. We'll make an announcement tomorrow. A video was also posted to his social media last night with Ford warning of turbulent waters ahead in the fight of COVID-19. He adds Ontario's health care system is on the brink of being overwhelmed. Over the next few months, 
We need to practice the social distancing and washing hands. In addition to the restrictions, Ontario is expected to release new COVID-19 projections tomorrow. Sources tell the CBC it shows intensive care units are to be filled beyond capacity by early February. Daily cases could also hit an average of 6,000 by the end of this month. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Let's bring in Jeff, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Pernica. He is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics, McMaster University, the head of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Disease, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, your thoughts on uh, basically, I guess what we're speculating at this point, obviously modeling numbers coming up tomorrow, uh, suggesting cases up over 6,000 a day and uh, no curfew coming. Your thoughts on these latest two pieces of information? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, none of this news is good. Um, the modelers have been talking about this kind of thing for some time. And I think we've heard uh, from a number of different regions how hospitals are getting stretched. So it's certainly, I mean, I would tend to agree that this is not a situation that we want to be in. So uh, interesting article in the uh, National Post over the weekend signed by uh, some prominent doctors and health officials and such talking about the need to uh, get the kids back into the classroom. Do you think it's a good idea to have kids out in Ontario this week or should they be like Quebec? Uh, even though they've got a curfew, they've uh, they uh, sent the kids back to school this week. So I, I think everyone has been focusing on the COVID case numbers, and obviously they are important, but they are not the only story. I, I think the health of our children has been, you know, in, in many ways overlooked uh, from the, you know, the dialogue both between people in the media over the past little while. And we should not forget about how important school is for our children's health. It's not only, you know, academic instruction, which leads to better educational attainment, which, which does correlate with overall health and adulthood, but it's also social and emotional skill development, physical exercise, safe spaces, and I mean safe from things like physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. There's nutrition reinforcement. Some children access health services there, um, and, and there's really a, a mental, a significant mental health benefit from attending school. And, and this seems to have disappeared, okay, from the conversation when we're talking about what is safe. COVID is a problem, but it's not the only problem. And so I think what is best for our children is for us to consider the full picture when we're deciding about whether kids can go back to school. I, I firmly believe that unless there is data to suggest that there would be significantly more COVID circulating because kids are in school, then they should be back in school. And as like, to the present time, okay, it has not been demonstrated that school attendance is amplifying or driving the community prevalence of COVID-19. That being said, the latest numbers that came out, which obviously led to the decision of keeping them out the extra week, was that over Christmas time, the over the holiday break, um, the cases for those under 13 quadrupled. So, um, so I mean, obviously not- now those cases are up. Do you put those kids back in school do you 
again, I, I, you know, we all know exactly what you just said. We had this discussion in the first wave, and I don't think it has fallen on deaf ears that that we've all of a sudden forgotten about how bad this is on the kids. I, th- I think we all know the best place for them to be is in school. The situation is how do you balance that with uh, case numbers that are going in the direction that we're seeing in the country, and in this situation, four times uh, the new cases uh, over the holidays. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that you and I know how important it is for kids to be in school, but there's a lot of people talking about how it's really safest for them to be out. So I'm not sure that that view is widely shared. The thing that I would say about Ontario is that it's a big place, okay? And so local epidemiology does vary. When the, when the public health people in Windsor-Essex decide to keep schools closed because there's a 30% positivity rate among their you know, teenagers, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think what we should be doing is keeping an eye on local epidemiology, because in some instances, okay, the risk of driving transmission will be higher if you have uh, prevalence rates that are very high in certain locations. It is not 30% uniformly across Ontario. It isn't in Hamilton. It isn't in Ottawa. And, do you know what I mean? And I fear that a lot of children may be out of school for a lot of time because the default setting in many people's minds is, oh, if, you know, if, if we have such and such a rate somewhere, then, then we, should discuss, we, we should shut schools everywhere. I, I think that that is going to be doing more harm than good to our children and to our greater society. Well, right now the schools in northern Ontario have opened up. It's the southern, those in the southernmost part of the province uh, that haven't. We're also seeing people, uh, you know, for example, you know, the ski hills were closed in Ontario, so people in Ontario went skiing in Quebec uh, over the holidays. So, you know, again, I'm not sure what you're telling us here, or we're learning any new information here. Again, we all know of the concerns, but how do you balance this? Um, well, I mean, you know, do I mean, you have kids in Hamilton? Do you have kids in Hamilton stay in school and just those in the hot spots that are in class or sorry, online? But but again, right. Northern oh, Northern Ontario schools are open, but Ottawa is in Northern Ontario and Hamilton is in Northern Ontario. And I'm not sure that our rates locally are high enough to worthwhile keeping schools closed indefinitely. What I think should be happening... Well, I don't think schools are closed indefinitely. They're closed well, no, until they're the closed 25th. Now. They're closed for now, and we don't know when they're Well, no, no, they're, they're scheduled to be closed until the 25th at this point. Right. Um, that's what we know. Um, so, uh, again, do you suggest that we would keep the schools open in the areas that aren't in hot spots? Like, for example, we know Toronto, uh, Peel, York, and Windsor are, are hot spots. So would, for example, those be in an, in, uh, uh, an online situation, but those in Halton or Hamilton would not be? They would be in so, class. So I think what I have observed is that child health experts generally are not present at the tables when decisions like this are being made. And so, yeah, I would say that different regions would have different um, triggers to open based on local epidemiology. I also think that there should be more attention paid 
to what we are going to be doing with schools uh, by the province. We do not have robust data on um, what happens to secondary case, what what secondary transmission rates actually are within Ontario schools. And so that could be prioritized by different testing strategies. I think we are also missing out on assuring that parents have access to paid sick leave so that there is there are no children with symptoms who end up in school when they open um, because parents aren't able to take care of them. And um, I think that we should be talking more about ensuring that strategies designed to prevent transmission are equally implemented among all of Ontario's teaching institutions. But you're right, we are scheduled to open on January 25th. We were also scheduled to open on the 11th, and that changed. I think that it is extremely unlikely that there will be a dramatic decrease in the overall community prevalence of COVID by January 25th. And so what I would say is, if decisions are made then, similar to the way the decisions have been made, it is entirely possible that someone will say, well, let's just keep schools closed for now too. And I would suggest that we need to keep in mind overall child health when this decision is made. Uh, Quebec uh, obviously imposing a, cur- a curfew over the weekend, uh, and I know it's hard to compare different provinces and such, uh, and their kids went back to school today, although now with more strict uh, masking uh, uh, protocol, I guess, which has been in place in Ontario schools since, since day one. Your thoughts on them going back into school? So again, we, there's been there's been new reports from different jurisdictions, right? So Norway just this past week revealed an analysis that showed with stringent testing there were very few secondary transmissions within schools. So kids who would get COVID in the community and then go to school obviously will have the potential to transmit, but there aren't that many transmissions happening. There was a report just this past week from the North Carolina um, uh, educational authorities, which showed that with close work between scientists and educators in that state, the number of secondary transmissions was kept to a minimum. The, The real question, okay, is if we shut schools, are there going to be fewer transmissions than if we do not? And if if there are going to be as many secondary transmissions outside of school than within school, then shutting schools doesn't provide any significant benefit, but it does provide the harms. And, and I totally agree with you. We've had this conversation before, and I, I totally believe that you and many of your listeners know how important school is. I do not think that this view is necessarily universally shared because that's what I see on the news and that's what I hear in conversations. And I think having this this conversation with you is immensely valuable to to try and make sure that we make the best public health policy possible. 
Um, many, and we only have about a minute left here. Uh, a lot of this comes back to testing, and it comes back to rapid testing. This is this is something. I mean, people have been beating this drum since this whole thing started. Clearly, we do not have rapid testing. Clearly, we're not getting it quickly anytime soon. Just as we don't have, uh, you know, uh, a strong supply of uh, to mass vaccinate at this point. Um, are we doing the best that we can with what we have? Because, you know, people say test this, test that. And it's, you know, other than the testing that we've seen to this to this date, we still don't have any really consistent rapid testing uh, in this country. Uh, and a lot of those places that you're referring to do. So uh, what can we do with what we have? I think that I think that's an excellent question. OK, and I think to date, I do not know of any systematic attempt to try and track what happens with COVID within schools. I think given how much the uh, community prevalence has increased, now is the time for us to focus more on that. Um, there hasn't been a lot of support previously, but but now I think uh, it would be good to do that. Uh, you mentioned vaccine provision as well. I would really hope, okay, that um, adults, within the school system and adult fragile adults who live in families with children who should be in school would be prioritized to receive the vaccine because the safer the adults are who have contact with school going people the more children will be back in school and the healthier that they will be Dr. Jeffrey Pernica has been with us, Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics, McMaster University, and the head of the Division of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Department. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Ontario has announced, or they haven't announced this, but uh, we're certainly getting sources inside um, uh, the government that are saying that uh, there will not be a curfew um, uh, implemented in Ontario uh, at this time. So to talk more about all of this and where we are, let's bring in Dr. Nahid Dasani, palliative care physician and health justice activist, and w- is with us now. Uh, the health community is criticizing the University of Health Network and uh, others for giving vaccines to non frontline workers or residents of long-term homes uh, to talk more about this the doctor is with us thank you for the time i hope you're doing well yes thanks so much for having me on the show so before we get into this let's uh, your thoughts on where we are and uh the modeling apparently coming out tomorrow uh painting a grim picture we could see six thousand cases a day what are your thoughts on where we are doctor You know, we are in a very difficult place um, here in Ontario. Um, Today's um, information that has come out is showing that our ICUs could very well be full um, uh, as we head into the end of January and February. We could be seeing 6,000 new cases a day. Um, And uh, we're seeing uh, that survey data has shown that many Ontarians are not actually following public health guidelines. And mobility data showed that the delay in lockdown from December 21st to the 25th um, actually had a huge impact on the number of cases that we're seeing. And that, you know, announcing a lockdown is going to happen in five days only encourages people to actually go out of their region even more. So, we're, we're, we're mm. headed to a place that is going to be very difficult, and we have to have some real conversations about how we've handled things so we can handle things better moving forward. So, uh, obviously, we've just seen uh, Quebec implement a, a curfew uh, on the weekend, uh, but yet the kids are back at school. Your thoughts on that approach, and, and should uh, Ontario be considering a curfew? 
Yeah, well, you know, we have to also understand that while curfews make sense in some ways, they can also have ramifications in other ways. Um, we already live in a country where people who of color um, are in racialized communities are over policed. Um, I provide health care for people experiencing homelessness, and um, I know that the criminalization of poverty just for existing for people experiencing homelessness in our communities is very real. And so while, you know, I, I appreciate the importance to, to, to keep cases down, and I can see curfew being part of that strategy, we need to think about how curfews overburden certain populations as well. And if we don't do that, then it's going to be unfair to people who, who, who experience poverty to, and to racialized communities who are already facing a significant burden during this pandemic. So it sounds like you're not necessarily in favor of curfews then. You know, I, I, I understand why public health experts and epidemiologists are calling for this, and I recognize the importance and need. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying that if we do move into a space that that moves into curfews, we need to recognize that there are some populations who will be overly yeah. burdened by a policy like that. So how are we being equity informed as a result of that? And so if there isn't a strategy about how to support people experiencing homelessness, for example, in a, in a curfew strategy, I'm going to call that out, right? I have problems with that because my patients will suffer. So I just think we, whenever we take a step in policy, we need to think about who this benefits and who this harms as well. Uh, obviously, your specialty is palliative care, but uh, again, the concern here is spread. Uh, over the holidays, we saw uh, an uptick in those under 13 by four times uh, of the people exposed. Uh, so, and the guest, the last guest I had on, the doctor I had on, you know, uh, and again with a column in the National Post signed by several doctors saying that we've got to try to keep the kids in class, which I guess we all know, uh, and we're not paying enough attention to the long-term effects of this. Uh, that being said, when push comes to shove, do you think kids should be in or out of schools I think in these hotspot really areas? Yeah, I think this is a really tough conversation that has multiple factors at play. What I, when I start to think about children and, and the impact in schools, I start to think about what did we know in the first wave? I mean, the first wave, we learned a lot of lessons. What did we implement? Our governments knew children were at risk at school. Our governments knew frontline workers were at risk at work and essential workers. They also knew seniors were at risk in long-term care. And so I think what you're starting to see now is as, as the evidence starts to build that actually schools are potentially um, a huge driver of transmission is, is, is frustration on the part of a concerned public, of health workers, of epidemiologists. And I know that debate happens because there's always like indirect consequences of closing and opening schools. And, I, and, I, and I'm watching that debate very closely, but we have to understand we got here because our governments didn't respond to begin with. And so now, um, you know, having kids at home, you know, um, we, we have the opportunity to see what impacts that will have, but we don't need to see that here in Ontario. We, we have evidence from other places. So I, I understand the need to, to have kids at home. And I think that's important to recognize. But parents are more burdened than ever before. And to my previous conversation, you know, parents who are working multiple jobs, um, you know, people who come from low income backgrounds in hotspots, they're being hit really hard as well. So I, I see it. But I, I think being at home right now is really important. 
Okay, so let's move to the issue as we are seeing more and more vaccines uh, come in. Obviously, uh, supply of vaccine is going to continue to be uh, an issue as far as a slow rollout until spring, they are saying. Um, And now there's chatter of who is getting it and who is not getting it. Who should be getting this? Um, We've got a situation here where not necessarily non uh, or not necessarily frontline workers, but those, uh, I I guess, up in the upper offices and such. Does it matter what what position you hold in healthcare? You should get a, a crack at this or how do we pick who gets it? Who doesn't? Well, I think it's important to recognize that here in Ontario, um, the vaccine task force has come to um, uh, uh, some conclusions about who should be getting the vaccine in the first phase, second and, 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 and phases after that. Um, and they've come to these conclusions through some bioethical consultations. And there's actually an ethical framework that they've used. And really, the first phase, phase is meant to be people who work as frontline workers in hospitals, um, in long-term care homes, people who um, are frail seniors who live in long-term care homes and retirement homes and other congregate settings. And I think what you're seeing in the headlines in news this morning is that people are uh, upset because there are um, uh, administrators who are um, getting the vaccine who may not be uh, patient facing. And there are some real ethical conundrums when we start to get um, uh, non-clinical staff um, getting vaccinated before uh, health workers who are at risk and actually seeing patients every day in the community, or we're, we're vaccinating administrators who are not directly patient-facing, and we're not vaccinating the LTC population, long-term care, where frail seniors are at high risk. You know, so some people are really upset at that, and I think we have to, as a province, get back to our ethical framework and really ask ourselves who is who needs to be vaccinated and who needs this now. Um, we need to prioritize high-risk populations. Uh, obviously, with the first phase of the vaccination and the Pfizer vaccine, uh, a lot of logistical problems with not being able to transport it and, and people coming to the vaccine. You, you certainly saw why that would make sense to have the, the uh, uh, frontline workers that could come to the hospitals or, or these distribution points and get the vaccine, get them. Uh, now that it is making its way into homes and the Moderna vaccine and such, um, what about people coming and going into long-term care? For example, what about the family member that's the primary caregiver for the parent that would be in a, a nursing home? Should they get it? Well, and, and this is where you start to get into what the second phase of vaccine rollout would include, which includes essential caregivers. And um, because of the fact that essential caregivers are themselves moving in and out of health facilities, this is a population that needs to be prioritized. We're just not there yet. Also thinking about health workers who work in long-term care and work in multiple facilities, you know, it's really important to think about their vaccination because they are going to multiple facilities. We also um, need to start having systemic conversations. I know, I know you want to talk about vaccines, but how can we talk about vaccines in long-term care if we're not talking about systemic inequities for health workers in long-term care? You know, there was a story that ran in media over the weekend about, you know, long-term care workers in Ottawa who um, live in a homeless shelter because they make so little income. They, we need decent wages and uh, paid sick leave so that maybe our health workers are more likely to work in one facility um, and thereby reduce risk. So there's, there's, it's very easy to talk about some of the superficial and e- easy to, to, to grab issues, but we need to dig at the roots for systemic issues that lead to these inequities also. 
And as with many things with COVID-19, this has really displayed the inequities and where uh, the issues are with many systems in our society. Oh, big time. COVID-19 hasn't just highlighted inequities, it's perpetuated inequities. And whether it's based on race or income level, uh, precariously employed people, people experiencing homelessness, people with disabilities, people who use drugs, people with mental illness, um, these are the populations that have fared the worst and have been overly burdened. So when our governments make, uh, you know, are delayed in their decision making around lockdowns, they delay vaccination or they delay public health strategies this week, you know, despite we, us knowing we're going to be in some really dire circumstances, we have to remember the impact is not on everyone equally. It affects people who are marginalized the most. And so it behooves our, our political leaders to act efficiently and effectively um, because these are the people who suffer the most. It's going to be fascinating come uh, March or April uh, after the first uh, phase of of people are vaccinated and then we start to move down the line um, what the discussion will be if the supply continues to be taxed, if we don't see mass quantities coming in by then. For sure, there's a supply issue. There's an administration and rollout issue. And then there's actually an uptake issue. And one thing that's not getting addressed enough is vaccine hesitancy. Just because you get the vaccine to someone doesn't mean that they're going to want to take the jab. And this is not to be confused with anti-vax culture. There's just a lot of people out there who just, you know, have a mistrust of the medical system or they need to learn more information about the vaccine or have past traumas with, you know, um, healthcare. And if we don't address the concept of vaccine hesitancy, particularly in racialized communities, we won't have the uptake that we need to get through COVID-19. So I hope we start moving the discourse to talk about vaccine hesitancy as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I remember that discussion uh, at the beginning of all of this uh, before the vaccines, uh, before a vaccine had been discovered. Uh, the chatter was all what about the vaccine? When are we going to get it? Um, and, and, you know, how effective it w- will it be? Those were the questions we were asking. And I remember talking to experts back then saying, you know, if we had the vaccine, the next question would be hesitancy and why or why not people going to get it. And, and that is very much a, a a large discussion that we're going to have as soon as they all arrive, meaning the vaccines all arrive on our doorstep. Absolutely. And I think um, platforms like yours will be really important in addressing misinformation out there because we have to remember that there is a, a long history of trauma and mistrust that people have of government and healthcare before the pandemic. And because of how many people, particularly racialized, uh, precariously employed people have fared during the pandemic and the lack of support that they've had, there's a lot of mistrust um, that has built up during the pandemic as well. So I really do hope that, um, you know, Scott, you use, continue to use the platform and, you know, with colleagues of mine to continue to address a misinformation and vaccine hesitancy. You said earlier, um, not a case of anti-vaxxer. It's not because we all know long before the pandemic, there was an anti-vaxxer <laughs> movement. Um, uh, has that increased that? Has that made us more skeptical? Or has it actually brought us, it brought the discussion into this millennium and the sense that, yes, this is something that can affect our generation, just not past uh, uh, generations. Uh, How is it separate from anti-vaxxers? 
Well, you know, there's no doubt that the anti-vax movement that was existing before the pandemic has now taken a, uh, you know, a stronghold and has really, you know, rooted themselves and anchored themselves in conversations about COVID-19 vaccines. And there is that movement and there will always be that movement that exists um, out there. We need to, you know, you produce, you know, evidence-based science and public health information to address that. But when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, these are not typically not people in our communities who don't want the vaccine at all or like anti-vaccine. They recognize the importance of it. They just, you know, feel that maybe this vaccine was rushed a little bit or they don't know what's in it or they don't know how it will mix with their health situation. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the supply of our vaccines and whether they're in freezers or not. And, you know, if, if they're getting out to the facilities, but we really need to get into people's hearts and minds about why this vaccine is important, address their fears and anxieties in ways that speak to them. And that means being culturally safe. That means using media platforms that people use. That means using social media platforms. Um, I know a lot of cultural groups have these like WhatsApp groups that are full of misinformation. We need to get in there (laughs) with the right Mm. information in creative ways. And so when we talk about addressing vaccine hesitancy, these are just some of the steps. Um, I've just got a couple of minutes left, but you've uh, brought another question to my attention. There's lots of discussion going around about one dose or two. Obviously, Health Canada says the prescription is you give them one and then 21 days later, you keep the rest and 21 days later, you give them the second one. That's also the prescription from Pfizer. Uh, some governments, uh, provincial governments have decided that they're going to just put the whole thing out there uh, and I guess just hope that, that more follow-up uh, vaccination comes in. So who do we follow? And, and I, I, do we follow, uh, and, and I guess even uh, Joe Biden in the United States has said this, although I think it's a different scenario for them because they actually manufacture it. So they've uh, certainly got their handle on, on, on the pulse of, of where it is coming and going, whereas we're buying it per se. But is it better to do one or and hold the second one back? Or do we follow this prescription and do what Health Canada and Pfizer has said? You know, I, I think it's important to take a step back and ask ourselves why we're even discussing this. It's, it's really important for people to understand that the supply chain yeah. um, to get a vaccine into a country approved and get it into the arms of people. There's a lot of steps. It is super complicated from supply to rollout to, again, like vaccine hesitancy and getting getting it into people's arms. And so we're having this discussion because we're not sure that we have an adequate supply coming in. At the end of the day, we know what this has been approved for. You know, you get the shot, for example, in the the vignette, you discuss, you wait 21 days for the next shot. And I, 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 I can't say that medically it's appropriate that we just give shots and then you know when the second one comes we hope it comes in 21 days like that is a question of of systemic issues and i my hope and and i I wonder if this is a bit of a cop-out is that by the time the public is really engaging with the vaccine here in canada the supply will have been fixed so that we are not having to have this conversation uh again i understand the anxieties and worries around it in the centers where it's being given now my understanding is by and large people there's enough supply to get people you know the one dose and then the next dose in 21 days for example so we'll have to see you know how that rolls out Dr. Nahids Dasani has been with us, palliative care physician and health justice activist. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Stay safe. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to play a quick report here from Reggie, uh, from Reggie uh, Giacchini, our uh, Washington correspondent, on uh, where we are today and the starting of the impeachment process. The House could vote on impeachment in a matter of days, but the Senate doesn't return until January 19th and likely doesn't have 100% support for an early return, meaning it's possible that an impeachment trial would begin after inauguration. But some lawmakers say that trial might wait until after Joe Biden's first 100 days in order to let his administration get a handle on a series of crises, including the pandemic. An impeachment trial would halt all Senate business while it's underway, leaving several Republicans to join a growing call for President Trump to resign. And it's still unclear if there would be a two-thirds majority to convict, while the Constitution makes it more unclear exactly how Trump could be disqualified from holding office again in the future. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. So, you know, really the dilemma here is there's, what, 10 days left before uh, the inauguration, less than that. Um, Any process to have him removed, other than if Mike Pence wants to go in and do it, along with the Republican Party, which that doesn't appear like it's going to happen. uh, The only other process would be through something like impeachment, which would take longer than what he is than the time that he's in office. Let's bring in Steve Dorsey. He is a correspondent with CBS News in Washington and is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, it's great to talk to you. Uh, thank you for the time. Can you give us a bit of an update on where we are now? We understand Democrats have started impeachment. What happens now? Uh, well, um, the uh, the Democrats are going to uh, take up the issue on the House floor as soon as uh, Wednesday, and that's where we expect uh, more action on, on impeachment. There's also the 25th uh, Amendment resolution that was objected to by a West Virginia congressman today. That'll be up for a House vote tomorrow before uh, impeachment even begins. So is this out of the is this out of the Republicans' hands? They've decided they're not going to remove the president, and now it is up to the Democrats through impeachment, not necessarily to remove him, but to make sure or try to get so he doesn't run again. Uh, can you well, add it, add to that at all? Well, it's not really up to the Republicans. It's up to Vice President Mike Pence to convene the cabinet to decide on whether or not to to to, to move on the Twenty Fifth Amendment. But we haven't really been hearing from Mike, Mike Pence about his intentions. So this is a way for Democrats to leverage pressure on Mike Pence before they even get to an impeachment, uh, which will come later this week. Many have said, what's the sense of impeaching Trump because there's only a few days left? What is the advantage to impeaching him? Well, Democrats would say it disqualifies him from running in 2024. Uh, It limits his ability to collect a a federal pension. Uh, It limits his Secret Service protection. Uh, So they say this is necessary to show that the uh, Constitution can't be abused by the president inciting what they believe were rioters that stormed the Capitol. Is there any advantage to the vice president removing him before uh, January 20th? Well, it's obviously a lot cleaner in many senses. Uh, It doesn't involve Congress, and it can happen quicker. Uh, However, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean um, there's not a lot of political fallout for that. Uh, especially at a time that's so crucial in a transition to a new presidency on January 20th. If the vice president chooses to use the 25th Amendment and remove the president, does that uh, ban him for, from running for future uh, political offices? You know, that's a good question. Um, uh, you know, I've wondered that myself. I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of that. But I imagine if he's unfit for it now, he'll uh, perhaps be unfit for it in the future. 
Uh, is why are some Republicans, um, I guess, late to denouncing the actions and, and support for Trump? Where does this leave the Republican Party moving forward? Well, listen, there's a lot of divisions within the Republican Party. They're still deciding on their future. And, the, and, and remember, the president's also a big fundraiser. Um, and, and they have to reconcile their own differences before they can move forward as a, as, as a party. And, and I think that's the, kind of the moment that they're at right now. Uh, uh, many talked about the last time when the, the Democrats uh, tried to impeach the president that this could all that could all backfire on the Democrats, that, you know, they could be seen as uh, as trying to be vindictive or political. Right. Has that discussion changed at all or is just what happened uh, on the Capitol that that pretty much erases all of that? Well, well listen, it's a different different moment in politics right now. Uh, what happened last uh, Wednesday is is bipartisan on a bipartisan basis, very serious. Democrats are gaining control of the Senate. They already have control of the House and the presidency. So politics aren't as much of a factor as they would would have been otherwise. So there isn't the concern that this could backfire on the Democrats as trying to be vindictive. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's there's a short term chance there to see fallout from this. Um, because there's nothing to really to lose for them right now. Certainly, in the next election cycle, yes, it, it, it that could be um, it could be uh, a challenge. But two years is a long way from where we are now. So again, as we mentioned, Steve, where does this leave the Republican Party? I mean, is it time to fish? Uh, you know, or cut bait here? Is it time to try to ride the coattails of any popularity uh, that he had, or will we see a, a party split? Will we see a Tea Party thing happen all over again? Yeah, I mean, it's possible you could see some kind of um, insurrection within the the GOP, uh, but until they really address the core of that, which is President Trump, it's hard to move beyond that. What about him being denied access to social media platforms? We understand he was quite uh, upset about that. How and many uh, many of the conspiracy theorists thinking that this is uh, uh, obviously uh, a fringe on his freedoms. That being said, he can still go down and use the press room and stand behind the podium and, and say whatever he wants. What has been the reaction to the loss of social media? Uh, well, certainly across uh, conservatives in this country, they've really denounced this move by Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms. You're right. He can use the power of his press secretary, the power of the White House briefing room. He's chosen not to do that, uh, and, and he's being criticized for that, especially by Democrats who say he's um, uh, had an opportunity uh, to, to address what's happening in this country, and he's, he's neglected that. Where does this leave the value of the Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump brand past January 20th? Uh, we've heard rumors that his kids are interested uh, in running. Uh, he obviously said he was considering it in 2024. Uh, the uh, impeachment may change all of that. But what about the brand itself? Uh, it, again, does it depend on who you ask? Yeah, I think it really depends on the, on the, on the future of the Trump family. Uh, you know, if, if we see more serious consequences to Donald Trump, his brand for raising money could be hurt, uh, especially as uh, donations from corporate providers like Citibank, like J.P. Morgan Chase, um, Marriott, all cut ties uh, with the Trump family, uh, and and that really leaves into uh, question what their ability to raise to make money is. What happens next? What happens through the rest of this week? What are you expecting? You know, I think uh, this week's going to be really important in Congress. Uh, I think. 
watching what happens in the House on Wednesday and then going forward from there um, will tell us a lot about what's going to happen before the um, before the inauguration and then the future of Donald Trump. Uh, Steve, last question. Anything more on the security issues surrounding what happened last Wednesday and, and how oh. these people not only got in but got onto the floor? Has there been any more anything uh, more come forward about that? Well, there's a new House Sergeant at Arms to help protect the House chamber. Uh, we know that the Washington Monument is being closed uh, in, in anticipation of perhaps more protests, more violence. Uh, there has been a lot of political fallout uh, and investigations promised of the Capitol police response to this uh and and now we're mourning you know a, a sixth person that's uh, that's died um a capitol police officer a second capitol police officer he was involved in, in uh, protecting the capitol one day and, and now has died steve dorsey has been with us cbs correspondent in washington steve thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated stay well hey, thank you uh, we certainly know what happened last Wednesday and many questions still unanswered as to what happened. Uh, Calgary police, or sorry, Capitol Police had only prepared for a peaceful protest despite the fact that pro-Trump extremists had been openly planning for more, uh, for far more, uh, destructive events for weeks. Uh, the, uh, the force lacked strategy, contingency plans, reinforcements to defend lawmakers. Leaders rejected offers to help, including from the FBI and the Pentagon before the attack, according to the Associated Press. Those two departments are likely to face increasing pressure over their responses. The Defense Department reportedly uh, hamstrung the National Guard and was uh, mattingly slow to accept an offer from Maryland Governor Larry Hogan to send reinforcements from his states. Uh, meanwhile, the FBI brushed aside Warnings from Senator Mark Warner ahead of the attack, assuring him that they were prepared. Uh, we talked to David Hyde, security expert, just after this is all ended. Wanted to go back to him and get an update on what we've learned so far. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. All good, Scott. Thank you. Uh, again, this still fascinates me, David, as to how this could have possibly happened. And we don't seem to really know anything more uh, than we did when we chatted last. But can you give us a bit of an update on how this investigation is moving forward? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's bits and pieces more, Scott, coming out. There will need to be a longer term investigation and a review. There may well be some type of a special committee pulled together, and things might take several months, some of the things that are more sensitive. But this is, frankly, uh, multiple layers of failures in intelligence, in planning, in leadership, and in coordination. All four of those are critical for any successful security venture around uh, a, a major event. And what we see here is the result is this catastrophic security failure that I think is probably the, the biggest one I can remember, maybe in a generation, to have such a failure where essentially these the lawmaking bodies, uh, House and, and Senate, were really exposed in a way that could have been, you know, just catastrophic consequences. So what do we know, Scott? We know that there's a lot of egg on the face of a lot of people. We know that there was some political pressure that was brought to bear. When, when political rationale comes into security decision-making, the risk levels always go through the roof. That appears to be what, what's happened here to a degree. We have a police force that did not want to reach out or accept support from some federal agencies. We have federal agencies that did not issue warnings through the apparatus that they have. In the U.S., they have what's called fusion centers. They're a collaboration between federal, state, and local law enforcement. They were put in place around the time of 9-11, after 9-11, to avoid intelligence 
and coordination planning failures. And the idea is that those fusion centers, they're all across the state to the DC one, and that they, they come together and they bring all the intelligence into all the law enforcement agencies. They put the issue warnings and they let you know what's coming, what's online, what's being said, what we're anticipating. That they did not issue a warning for this. There was no threat profile issued to the police department. So again, Scott, really, whichever way you look here, I'm just seeing a complete absence of proper security protocols that, frankly, you know, I would expect to see put in place if, you know, um, a famous person was coming to the local mall in the day when we were had those things happening before COVID, mm. let alone uh, an event of this magnitude. So Capitol Police had only been prepared for a peaceful protest. Is that acceptable? Is that, I mean, can anybody think that that would have been okay? I mean, my goodness, we knew about this. We knew that this rally was designed to antagonize. Can you use that as an excuse? Absolutely not, Scott. I mean, you and I and your listeners just tracking the social media and and, and the media um you know, on this, the reporting, what was being said, what politicians like Trump and other uh, of his group there were actually saying and 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 uh, laying out there. And more than that, even, Scott, these insurrectionists, as maybe we'll call them, were very open in their planning. There's Facebook stuff, stuff on Twitter, on Parler, on a number of other social media platforms. And, and the, the authorities knew that some of this was occurring. A few of these people were actually intercepted. The FBI did what they call a knock and talk, and they, and they would kind of intervene in, in some of the heads of these white supremacy groups or other people that were planning to attend. They intercepted them and said, you know, we know what you're doing, and you might not want to attend. But that's no replacement, Scott, for the fact of might, they might have spoken to 10 people, but there was 150 who were coming. Uh, and the, the real failure here is that there was really nothing put in place that tied the intelligence to the level of threat and ramping up from a peaceful protest preparation to a riot preparation. The, the, the planning, the number of forces, the leadership, the supervision, the equipment, the, you know, there was no temporary perimeter fencing put up, Scott, to speak of, around the Capitol for this potentially violent event. There was no real, uh, you know, the security was Swiss cheese outside the complex. And it's a 19th century building that uh, is very porous. And, you, and the, the windows and the doors and the way it's been constructed, you, you know, if you get through those outer layers of security, you are going to be able to make your way into the building unless you have overwhelming force. I think that one of the really important part here, Scott, is that one of the lieutenants in the Capitol Police made a decision very early to advise the police officers not to engage with deadly force. Mm -hmm. There are two real kind of operating paradigms that the police would operate in. They're always, of course, doing what they need to do, and they will react accordingly based on their training and their mandate. But when you have a big protest like this and things start to kind of bubble over, you, eat, you make a decision. The decision is we are going to use all means short of deadly force to repel this protest. We will use pepper spray. We'll use batons. We will use, you know, any physical aspects that we have. There are other water cannons, a wide range of things that your listeners may have seen in, in different protests in the past. Or, but we will not engage in deadly force. We will not take out firearms and shoot people who are approaching the building who won't listen to three warnings to cease and desist. And you can imagine, Scott, 
if they had done that, if if there had been a deadly force used by the authorities, what this incident would have been? Would it have repelled the attack and maybe kept mm. some people out of, you know, penetrating way into the building? Yes. But what would the media stories be today when yeah. if there was dozens of people who had been shot dead uh, that didn't have a firearm, perhaps, or that weren't trying to kill people, they would just... It's so hard to separate someone who's looking to do someone harm than someone who's getting, you know, out ahead of themselves on a protest. And that's what we saw. And that's the decision that was made here. And all of this needs to be reviewed, Scott. So obviously this was the crowd that was in the rally, that was attending the rally with uh, President Trump and and Rudy Giuliani and the likes of uh, getting whipped into a frenzy. And then they marched down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol building, which uh, I understand is just a couple of blocks away. That being said, you know, many have said it's unbelievable that nothing more happened. There was not more uh, there were there weren't more people killed. There didn't seem to be a lot of weaponry. My question asking is, would the people who had attended that initial rally all had to have been screened, all had to have been searched. So once they headed down to uh, the Capitol building, uh, they would have already gone through some sort of security. Is, is there any validity to any of that? Min- minimal, Scott. I mean, yeah. you know, there were there were some there were some weaponry. There were um, some, um, you know, what, what one one vehicle that was with one of the one of these people had eleven Molotov cocktails in it that was actually mm-hmm. right in the area. So, so yes, there are minimal security protocols in 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 the area, but nothing that would prevent um, people from having weapons. That we, we know that there were some weapons. That they had a load of pepper spray, mace, bear spray. The um, the, the, the rioters did, and, and and other weapons as well. So no, I, I don't think that you could never have relied upon the fact that there'd be no weapons. These people had all been searched. That that wasn't the case. And I think that um, you know just just given the absolute lack of change from a daily routine protocol at the police de- uh, deployment there is just hard to explain. They had the regular complement of United States Capitol Police that they would ordinarily have. You know, that, I, that just confounds belief. I mean, even if hmm. it was a peaceful protest with the numbers and just the tenor of the debate right now and, and what's happening in the states, you'd have to just be have zero common sense to not realize that, you know, if I operate on an ordinary protocol with a thousand staff, I might need to double that for this. I might need to have my my SWAT team at the ready. I might need to have some extra protections for them. I might need to put some extra barriers up. It's just common sense stuff that it's just so difficult to believe how that couldn't have happened. And like I said, Scott, this is not security and police people left to their own devices. There's not, I'm confident in saying there's not a chief of police in North America that would have just silently allowed this to happen. So I do not believe that the fault lies right at the foot of the police. The bottom line in this case, in my view, from many years working in this field, is that there was political uh, involvement. The police maybe asked for more and were told, we don't want to have a repeat of of the summer protests with police brutality and Black Lives Matter, where it was Trump, you know, made it into something very, very heavy, uh, very forceful. And I think that there was some politicals 
uh, folks that did not want to risk that. So they really wanted to keep it to themselves. Don't let the, 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 the um, special guard come in. Don't let the um, FBI or DHS people come in. We'll handle this ourselves. I, I'm confident that these police people asked for more resources and asked to have a more muscular approach to this, Scott, and I believe they weren't allowed to do that. I, I, I cannot rationalize any other explanation to that. Last time we spoke, you talked about the Washington mayor and her role in all of this. Is she one of those that perhaps uh, didn't realize that more security was needed? I think so. I mean, from all the reporting that I'm seeing, and you never want to just pinpoint one person. It's always uh, you know, a lot of things that come together. But the, the mayor of D.C. Um, definitely was someone, she, and it's very much in the records. It's not, not, not my opinion, Scott. She put out a press release a day or so like on the Tuesday, the day before this happened, making it very clear that she did not want any input or any involvement from any federal agencies. And if they did, they'd have to kind of coordinate with that with her first. It was I can't quite recall the wording, but it was it was quite unusual to see that in the face of a day before this is happening. So it's very clear to me, Scott, that that there was political desire interference, if you will. That, that really, I think, handcuffed the police to a degree, that they weren't able uh, to do that. And when you're a chief of police in that situation, you have two choices. You either toe the line of the political line or you put your job on the line and, and, and you almost turn into a whistleblower and you say, look, sorry, I, I, can't, I can't do this. That has happened on a few occasions, but it's much more commonly the case that they work these things out behind closed doors and, and, um, and they hope for the best. And in this case, hoping for the best didn't work. But would the Washington mayor have the final say on this? Like, considering the size and scope of this event, it's a federal event, wouldn't the National... Uh, whose job is it to call out the National Guard? Well, well, look, the, 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 it's unusual in the... Um, uh, the president is the person that's supposed to call out the National Guard in D.C. It's unique given it's a district, not, not a regular state. So it's a little unusual in the, in the reporting lines. And the bottom line is... National Guard was deployed in advance, Scott, on this, but they were doing traffic control. They hadn't been deployed into an operational readiness state where they had riot gear. They were ready to be deployed. So it took about, by the time all the disconnects came through and, and who has authority, and again, all, all things that should have been very much ironed out in advance. Uh, so you can ramp up the security uh, on a dime. That's what should happen in one of the most highly protected buildings in the world. And, and that didn't happen. And it took almost four hours to really get that deployment of National Guard in. What saved the day to a degree, Scott, was the local um, the, uh, um, city of D.C. Uh, p- police, city of Washington police. And also it was the um, uh, like DHS, the ATF and other federal agencies that have local branches there and the agents in charge were contacted because of their relationships with the local law enforcement, and they descended, and, and you saw a rallying of the kind of f- firepower, frankly, you needed. And they are the ones that went into this catacomb building that they had not done pre-operational preparation, and they had to go in there and figure out where all these intersectionists were, insurrectionists were located, and go down these catacomb hallways into the far-flung reaches to try and find where the um, Senate members and things were secreted across across the building. It really was uh, just a 
a, a crazy situation, Scott. So what would have the administration's role been in this? What, or President Trump himself? What, what role do they play in all of this? This was, you know, after all, their event. That's right. Well, it was their event held, you know, I guess where it was. But then that group came down from, you know, further down to the Capitol. And at that point, the Capitol Police are under the purview of the Congress. That's the jurisdiction there. However, um, the, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI are all federal agencies. So they get their marching orders th- through the federal government. Now, the challenge we have here, Scott, is that Trump has taken away some of the more regular appointees and put in place, even in the, uh, in the, in the Pentagon, there are civilian uh, assignments that are kind of, you might say, Trump's cronies or people that really align with him. And they just get in the way of the regular chain of reacting and planning for events like this. Who, if, if you're a federal leader, political leader that's involved in DHS or involved in Department of Justice or something, are you going to want to be the one that, that says to President Trump, we need to really get ahead of your protesters and all the people that are coming in that, are, that you've kind of whipped up here? We're going to be hard on those folks. We're going to have to have a very muscular approach. No one's going to say that to Trump and, 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 and survive to tell the tale. So that's why I'm saying there's a lot of political pressure was wielded. And, and a big part of this was the fact these weren't Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protesters. These weren't people that were protesting other kinds of causes. Mm-hmm. These are people that support the president who he described as being very special people, even after they mounted the attack yeah. on the Capitol. And that's one of the reasons, Scott, why they were treated uh, with greater deference in a way than they would have been treated if they'd just been a white supremacy group or some other group that didn't have the perceived backing of the president. You know, we have heard that the president uh, stood in in his office and watched this all go down, uh, his staff freaking out and what's uh, what's going on. He seemed to uh, to relish it for lack of a better relish in it for lack of a uh, a better word. At what point does somebody just say, wait a sec, I got to make a phone call. This has got to stop now. Well, yeah, and people do. And as you can see, it was it was Mike Pence that definitely put pressure on getting the National Guard moving quicker when Trump really refused to step mm-hmm. into that to that role. And, and there's many other examples where people in kind of Trump's circle or appointees reached out through back channels to get messaging out to do various things. But I think that everyone was just shocked at the fact that this, you know, Trump was able to maintain you know his desire to to impact the course of the election and still clinging on to the potential to maintain power that trumped everything even the health and safety of of, of thousands hundreds of people even the very well-being of senators and and members of congress scott i i really can't understate it you had people that had you know um a lot of potential to do harm there were some weapons there was uh, anger, etc. People had zip ties. Some of these guys mm. to, to, to handcuff to handcuff people. It, this could easily have been ten or twenty members of Congress being taken hostage. I mean, literally, we are not that far away from ha- from from having to be, to have dealt with that situation. I really don't think it gets much closer to seeing something that would have been out of all scale 
and would have made, you know, really would have been the, the biggest uh, incident of our lifetime if, if that had happened. So we can't underscore how serious it was. And here's Trump sitting there, you know, just kind of watching it happen and hoping that it goes his way and, and having no regard at all for the well-being, the health and safety and, and just common sense things that, that anybody with a, with a conscience or some morality would have, frankly. David Hyde has been with us, security expert, and talking uh, a week uh, or the week after uh, what happened, of course, last Wednesday. And sadly enough, we don't know we don't know much more now than we did then. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.